welcome to the Together in the UK podcast. Thank you so much, Michelle, Michelle Bent, for agreeing to be a guest on the Together in the UK podcast. We met on an introduction to playwriting course, so I know from that course that you want to tell your parent story of migrating from Barbados to the UK. I'm really, really excited to explore their story and something about your life as a second generation migrant. Let's start with, why do you want to tell your parent story? Thanks very much. I, I am really, really excited about talking about my parents' story as well. I think it's a story that's worth telling. I think especially because as uh, migrants, they were invited here, you know, and, and but when they got here, it was more or less as if the door had been, you know, slammed in their face. They didn't get such a warm reception as they thought they were going to receive when they first came to this country. What do you think they were expecting? Well, it's funny, really, because they grew up under the British flag. They were part of the empire, part of the Commonwealth. Everything they learned about Britain, they learned in their history lessons at school. And Britain was a mother country. I guess they expected for this mother to hold them somewhat to, to her bosom, and she didn't. It was quite a disappointment, especially when I think about how, you know, for example, my mother was invited to Britain. She didn't think of the idea herself. She used to attend a church and it was the minister, the church minister. He was actually a vicar who originally came from Devon and he went to their little village church in Barbados and he started to more or less handpick the young girls who he thought were so suitable to send to Britain to work as nurses. I think in other than pack their suitcases and provide the money for the trip, or the guarantee of being able to pay a certain amount of money back, they did little else, you know, okay, of course they had to get their passports, but it was very much organised on their behalf. So having had all this organisation take place, one would have thought that people would have been excited for them to come. One would have thought, indeed, and I think it's important that we just set the context that your parents would then have been part, didn't actually come on the Windrush, but they were part of the Windrush generation. They were. My father came in 1955. He came after there was a big recruitment drive for people to come and work for London Transport and London Underground. He came by plane, he came here. And then my mum came in 1956. There were two Windrush-type cruise liners that brought people here. She came on one called the, I think it's called the Erpenia, if I'm not mistaken. But she came on one of two of the big ships that brought everybody here. And she came full of hope. Full of hope, yeah. And excitement. Both your parents had to cope with presumably quite a lot of significant disappointment. They did. They did. I mean, it's quite funny, really, because my mum, when she first came to this country, she went to a little, another little village over here called um, Chaplin Frith, up in Derbyshire. Chaplin Frith, I think it's pronounced. And um, there were three nurses that came together, all invited by this particular vicar. And um, they were the only three Caribbean girls in the village. And they were treated like celebrities in actual fact you know if anything was on the local town etc they were invited to it you know the concerts the parties and they were pretty much seen as celebrities and they, and they didn't really see any real racism everybody accepted them you know and it was really um very very pleasant 
My mother always says it was when she came to London, it was a big slap in the face. She really saw the racism. It was quite a contrast for her. For about the first two years when she was here and she was up north, she, she just didn't see any of the racism that a lot of people talk about, you know, when they're, when they're in a bigger city. And we know it was that terrible time of sort of those posters, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Yeah. Did she see them? Yes, she did. She did. You know, when they were, um, especially when her and my father um, got together and got married. That was late 50s um, and they were looking for somewhere to live. That was the tone generally, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. You know, there were very few people that would actually rent the Caribbean and African families anywhere to live. She said it was mostly Jewish families or Greeks or other immigrant families who had been able to get together to get some sort of accommodation that were the people who would rent. To other minorities? To other minorities, yeah. yeah. They would rent to other minorities. It must have felt like the most enormous slap in the face to see something like that. Did she tell you about how it impacted on her? Yes, but I think because she was quite quite young she was able to you know work along with it because there were often time there were lots of families living in accommodation you know everybody having to share amenities sometimes people basically stealing from one another because my mother always says that she used to put a shilling in the gas meter and the moment that shilling dropped everybody would come out with their pots and pans to all cook <laughs> my mother's money <laughs> you know so so Everybody was just trying to survive, I guess. Yeah, so it, it was quite difficult. I'm not quite sure how they felt, you know, with this attitude of no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. I'm not quite sure how much they took that on. You know, sometimes I think people just said, well, if that's their attitude, we'll just move along and keep on moving. And make their own life. So how did they overcome the challenges? I know... It's a huge thing to do to create a life and a career and a family in a new country. Can you tell us something about their attitude? I think that they were here to gain as much knowledge as they could gain. So many individuals came thinking, well, I'm going to spend five years in Britain, then go back home. I'll have some money in my pocket. I might have an extra qualification and I'll be able to start up a whole new life in the Caribbean. I might be able to start my own business or if I've got more qualifications, perhaps get into a better job. But I think that people got caught up in the daily grind of living in the UK. You know, perhaps children came along or they always had to send money home to family, so never had quite enough. And there was always this sense anyway of people not wanting to go back without having achieved anything here. So um, as I say, I guess people got caught up with living and raising a family and work in Britain. You know, my parents, well, really, they kept their eyes on the prize. They had decided that they wanted to retire in Barbados. So, you know, after buying a house here, I mean, it's quite funny, really. You know, you hear about people moving two, three, four or five times. I grew up in the same house from the age of three to about 25. My parents, once they bought their house, they never moved. They were able to pay off their mortgage and they were able to save and build their house back home in Barbados. And it was only when they retired that my mother and father decided, right. And they took early retirement. They both retired before the age of 60. They took early retirement and went home and decided to enjoy life there. They did manage to achieve what they set out to, 
but it was sort of like more than five times five rather than just five years. It's a heck of an achievement that they bought their own house, they paid it off, yeah. they built the house, and that was just presumably just solid hard work. Yes, it was indeed, yeah, hard work. And there must have been some joys in living in the UK, even though they retired to Barbados. What were the joys of life here for them? I guess friends and family, more so than anything else, being able to you know, afford to have their own house and seeing their children grow up and have a decent education. I went to university and, uh, yeah, I was actually the first in the family to have achieved that. And, you know, that's something that my parents wouldn't have been able to do themselves, you know, because of the education system in the Caribbean, because of the experiences they experienced when they came here, you know, that opportunity just never presented itself to them. So to see their children get decent jobs, get a decent education, yeah, that was a joy for them. They must have been incredibly proud at your graduation. Yes, yes, they were. <laughs> uh, I think my mother wants another shot at the graduation trip because she's now saying to me about doing my PhD. <laughs> no! <laughs> Well, that's a good motivation. <laughs> Let's sort of think about you and how do you think your parents being both from the Caribbean and living in the UK, how did it influence their parenting? I'm not really sure, to be perfectly honest, because I think very often parenting style of the UK even more so now than when I was a child, is quite different to the Caribbean parenting style because, you know, there's this very strict upbringing I often hear about Caribbean and African families, you know, they it's said that we get lashings, etc. But um, not true. I can't ever remember being beaten as a child or anything else because both my parents had this thing that we used to call the look. It was this sort of look that they gave you that would just make your heart wither. You know, if you're misbehaving, they would just stop and give you this phenomenal Dare. And you just knew it was time to, to behave yourself, you know, to stop the antics. And that used to work quite well. Very much about respecting your elders as well, not back chatting, you know, basically um, doing what you were told. You know, if you were told off by an elder, then you did as you were told. You just stopped the nonsense, really. I, I think the look must be quite universal because <laughs> I can certainly remember a look from my parents and... Uh, if my mum ever said, uh, don't be so wet, mm. that was really galvanising. Yeah. You know, I could not be thought of as wet. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are words that probably every parent uses. Oh, yes, there certainly are, because I remember my mum often used to say, me and you ain't company, you know, or me and you don't pitch marbles together, you know, and, and that would just sort of like, well, put me in my place so to speak you know that we're not on on a par really so there were these certain phrases that they would say that would just stop you in your tracks so that me and you and the marbles that means you're not i'm not playing with you <laughs> yeah yes yes me, me and you don't pitch marbles together and me and you aren't company or me and you in size is the other one meaning you're not as big as me <laughs> Uh, and then there used to be this reminder same face you laugh with is the same face you cry with and then um, another very Bajan one was um, as it hard is you want here by and by you're going to feel 
So in other words, if you can't hear what I'm telling you, you will feel it. You know, pretty much like um, when you child tell the child not to touch the fire, but they will put their finger in and they'll end up getting burned. These are great phrases. Just for people listening, I might just add that Bajan means you're from Barbados. That's right. <laughs> you're a Barbadian, you're a Bajan. So I've heard there's a migrant optimism when you first come to the UK, you know, you said your parents, they were young, they saw these awful posters, but they just got on with it. They and, just got on with it, yes. But the second generation, quite rightly, expects more to be equal. Do you think there's some ways you've approached things differently to your parents? I'm not altogether sure. I guess in some ways we tend to question a lot more, which oftentimes used to get us into trouble at school, you know, when the teacher if the teacher should say anything negative as a child, I know I would question what the teacher was saying and I just wouldn't take, I just wouldn't take any nonsense from the teachers, to be perfectly honest. Like, let me give you an example. When I was in secondary school, when I was about 11 or 12, we used to have this cookery, home economics cookery lesson. I remember one particular day, I wasn't particularly good at cooking, I have to admit, but one particular day, I can't even remember what it was that I was cooking. I think it was a pineapple upside down cake or something. And I just didn't understand some of what the teacher was saying when she was giving the instructions. And she went, I could teach a monkey to cook better than you. Oh my goodness, I made such a fuss. You know, there are sometimes that Perhaps the older generation, they they might say something and move on. But I can remember um, actually going to the deputy head, um, making a fuss, complaining, how dare she say that to me, etc. To the point where she actually had to apologise to me in front of the class. I expected that apology, to be perfectly honest. I think that the younger generation weren't going to take I mean, I'm not saying that my parents or the older generation took things lying down, but they probably said what they had to say and moved on, not looking for any satisfaction. I wasn't going to take that kind of comment. Good for you. This is a pattern that continues because when I've asked people what really surprises them about coming to the UK, often people have said it's actually that we're not quite so respectful for teachers. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a mixed blessing, probably. <sighs> what legacy? you think your parents have given you and their grandchildren? I think that the vision that if you work hard, you can actually achieve something because we've seen them do it. We've seen, you know, my parents work hard and achieve something. That mentality that you can, against all odds, and regardless of what anybody else says to you, if you want it, you can really go out and get it. I think that's a really important lesson. You know, especially in these times. A really important lesson and it's really true. So just tell me a little bit about your play and your sort of hopes for it. Right. I've written a play. It's come out of, I mean, as I say, my mother lives in Barbados now and we phone each other nearly every evening, talk on FaceTime. I'm always very careful to sort of like answer, if she's phoning me, I answer on one phone and and then I put my tape recorder on because I know that sooner or later she's going to get into a story. And a while ago, when I realised how much fun some of her stories are, I said, I have to chronicle these for all time. I just can't, you know, let them go. I really have to do something with them. Many a time she'd talk about when her and my father 
first decided that they were going to get their own home. They were going to buy a house. In actual fact, they weren't looking to buy a house. They thought that they were going to try and um, rent a flat because the council weren't coming through for them. The council didn't seem interested in taking them on as tenants. And, um, you know, she tells this story of such vigour and so much fun. I thought, yes, I must write this down. So I've written a play called The House, that's just its working title, about when my parents went forward to buy their first property. Lots of the characters, there. there is obviously a, a story based on truth, uh, but some of the characters are a little bit exaggerated, admittedly, but at the same time, you know, it sort of like gives a snapshot of how life was back in the, in the late 60s, well, early 60s through to the late 70s. You know, it's a really interesting story. I've been privileged to be part of the first reading because there's a fantastically interesting story. And I think those of us who've lost their mums wish we'd done that. I mean, what a lovely thing to do to capture your mum's stories and then translate all that learning and insight that you have from them into a play that many people can enjoy. Yes, I did think about a book. I'm not quite sure how it got to be a play instead. I think I was just sort of like messing around with writing it and I thought, ah, you know, this will be so entertaining if it were a play. As I've been doing my research, I've noticed that there just seems to be more and more writing about when people came in the 50s and 60s, but a lot of it seems to concentrate on the very first migrants, the Windrush, the actual people that came off of the Windrush. But I think that I've set this particular plate a little bit later. I've set it in the early 1960s when the Caribbean community becoming that little bit more established, really. And able to support each other. And able to support one another, yes. You know, I've put some things in about um, this savings system that Caribbean people um, have had over the ages called the partner. Some people call it susu, some people call it pardoner, meet in hand. It's got different names in different Caribbean islands, but at the end of the day, it's the same thing. And, you know, recently in my research, I actually discovered that it originally comes from Africa. So it's a whole system where each person that's involved in this sort of group of people who are saving together might put in a certain amount of money and every week a different person takes that whole pot and they're able to do with it you know whatever they they can if they want to buy clothes for their children or they want to go on a trip or something that's an interest-free way of saving because they'll continue to put money back into the pot and somebody else will have it the following week and then somebody else the next week but the bottom line is Nobody's paying any interest on it, so that's how they're able to save on the cheap, really. What a brilliant system. Mm, it's a fantastic system. If anyone listening to this wants to find out more about your play or help you get it commissioned, how can they get in touch with you? Right, that would be fantastic if people were interested. They can email me. I'm going to give you my email address, Michelle, and it's Michelle with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E underscore Bent, B-E-N-T, at hotmail.com michelle underscore bent at hotmail.com if you'd like to find out more about us go to our website www.togetherintheuk.co.uk thank you